Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Focus Group Podcast. I'm Sarah Longwell, publisher of The Bulwark, and this week we're talking Florida. It used to be one of the swingiest swing states, but now, just like a Florida tourist, it's getting redder every day. Florida has become a bit of a beacon for conservatives of late. It's Trump's home state, and it's apparently where he keeps all of his presidential souvenirs, such as the country's top secret national security documents. It's also home to Trump's biggest potential political rival, Ron DeSantis. The focus group we're discussing today is comprised of people who didn't vote for Trump in 2016, but did vote for him in 2020. A couple of them voted for Hillary Clinton, but most either didn't vote in 2016, went third party, and then there was one guy who wrote in Marco Rubio. So they're not hardcore Republican or MAGA partisans. My guest today is the best Florida man in the National Political Press Corps, Mark Caputo from NBC News. Mark, thanks so much for being here. Well, thanks for having me, Sarah. Appreciate it. Did you like my joke about the Florida tourists? I did. uh, Okay, because you didn't like laugh out. So it must not be like laugh out loud funny. It's just like kind (laughs) of. No, it was. was, I I liked it. Yeah, there's a there's a type of tree that grows in South Florida called a gumbo limbo. It's red and it peels. And that's why it's called a tourist tree. Ah, yeah. uh, I thought of that instantly. Great. So listen, you know, Florida better than most people. DeSantis eked out a victory there in 2018, but I suspect the state has changed a lot in the last four years. He seems likely to cruise to victory this time. Just like, what's your take broadly on what is going on in Florida over the last few years? You know, it's a combination of factors. I think it's partly just a fulfillment of kind of the inverse of what many people came to believe during the Obama era about how demographics is destiny. You know, at the time, there was all this talk in 2008, 10, 12, about the ascendant coalition, et cetera, nationwide and how that was going to buoy Democratic prospects. But when you start to look at Florida, we're a state that's really built as one of its cores outside of tourism on having retirees move here. We're really the eldest state in the nation, you know, percentage-wise. I think Maine beats us out, but, you know, it's Maine. <laughs> and when you look at the people who move to Florida, why do you move to Florida? Well, you have the money, and a lot of people don't want to pay the taxes, And usually that correlates with them being obviously old because they're retiring here. And if you're old and you have a lot of money and you want to pay taxes, you're generally going to be white. Well, old, white and rich kind of correlates pretty closely with Republican. And on top of that, there's been just a division, an increasing racial division in our politics where more and more white voters are voting Republican as well. And then on top of that, you have Latino voters, Hispanic voters are starting to trend more Republican. And there are different Latino communities here, which I can go into in great depth if you so choose. So when you layer those things on top of each other, you stack those things on each other. And then you look at the Democratic Party. It's just been pretty hapless. They haven't necessarily had good candidates. They've done a poor job raising money, organizing, seizing their advantages. And especially when it comes to Latino voters, some of the national progressive ascendance in the Democratic Party has helped the Republican cause in wooing away more Hispanics to the Republican four. And what I mean by that specifically, I live in Miami-Dade County. It's the largest county, the most populous county in the state. It's also the one with the greatest number of people who are born in another country, 50%, 50%, more than half of our population actually has been born in another country, mainly throughout Latin America. And 
when you look at the polling and you talk to even Democrats who understand the electorate here, they say the combination of Bernie Sanders in 2016, AOC in 2018, their embrace of democratic socialism, just the word socialism, and then Bernie Sanders' return in 2020 was really sort of a, a toxic combination, at least in the perspective of the Democratic Party, in that it gave Republicans purchase and ability to more persuasively argue to people of Cuban-American descent and heritage, uh, as well as Venezuelan, Colombian, and Nicaraguan, that, hey, these folks are leftists. They're not with you. They align with those strongmen, dictators, or rebel guerrillas you fled, or your ancestors, your parents fled in these various countries. Uh, Stick with us. And so those things have kind of combined together to to lead us to where we are today, not just in Miami-Dade, but in the rest of the state. Yeah, so that all makes sense to me and attracts. Uh, although, you know, what's interesting to me about the focus group that we watched together is that these were people who didn't vote for Trump the first time. Right. I really like groups like this because I think it tells us a lot about the ways that Trump kind of changed the party. And one of the things that struck me was there was a bunch of people in this group, right? So like I said, there was two people who had voted for Hillary Clinton the woman who was probably the most MAGA had been a Clinton voter. And she was just like, you know, I wasn't following politics before, but then Donald Trump happened and I started following politics. Now I'm super into it. And she sounded very much like a modern day Trump voter, but the rest of them were kind of like pulled into politics by Donald Trump, right? Like he, he added people and these were all Floridians. He, he basically took people who were like, yeah, you know, I wasn't really paying that much attention to politics or I didn't vote before or I didn't vote in 2016 because I was like, eh, both of these people are terrible. So I like wrote in Marco Rubio, but they were all on board with Trump now. And so is there something about Florida that makes it super responsive? And I'm going to use this to transition here to DeSantis pretty quickly to this like combative style of politics. Perhaps. I mean, one of the things we can say is a lot of money was spent here by Democrats, Michael Bloomberg especially, to defeat Donald Trump. And Donald Trump, in turn, spent a lot of money not to get defeated here. Normally, when a presidential campaign is run, it divides up sections of the nation into regions. So there's a Northeast region, and there's a Southwest region, and there's a Mountain region. For the Southeast region, Trump actually broke off Florida into its own region to give you an idea of how much he focused on it. But beyond that, there is a kind of, and I understand we're a suburban state, so I don't want to make this sound as if we're all walking around with coonskin caps and (laughs) muzzle-loading guns, but we are sort of a frontier state. We have a frontier mentality. This is a place where people go to sort of reinvent themselves. Florida hustles. It's a place where people come to, not only from the rest of the nation but from other nations to participate in the American dream. It's very much a get the money, get rich quick sort of place. Like Miami, where I live, this is the kind of place where you can be with someone who who suddenly has like hundreds of thousands, if not a million dollars overnight. The last thing you do is ask the person how they got it because you don't want to get deposed or interviewed by the police. So, but the reality is, is this is a place where you have hardworking people. Don't get me wrong. People who want to hustle and make it big. You got criminals, shysters, hucksters, all of that sort of mixing together here. It's a very dynamic place. So if I'm to guess and say, well, what is it about Donald Trump that appeals to Florida? It's that like, 
I'm here. I'm living my own reality. I'm reinventing myself. I am who I am. And you know, if you don't like it, go fuck yourself. Yeah, that's a, that's a good answer. You heard in the, the focus group, what's really interesting, especially when it comes to Trump and DeSantis, what do they like most about him? They're kind of incoherent about policy. Totally. Right? But what they loved about both of them is they love their attitude. Yeah, it's all vibes. Right? Like he doesn't back down. And like people don't want to be kind of pushed around here. This is a big gun owning state in part for that reason. So there it sort of tracks if I have to guess. All right. So it's a perfect transition. Let's get into DeSantis here. Everyone in this group saw DeSantis and not just in this group, but nationally, if, if we're we're grading it by how many reporters call me to ask what people think about DeSantis in the focus <laughs> groups, you know, and he's having a real boomlet here. They all think of him as a 2024 contender. And so we asked the groups to grade DeSantis. Everyone gave him an A or a B, although most, I would say, were in the A range. So let's listen to what these voters had to say when asked about DeSantis. I think he is a man that stands for something. I think he knows what he wants to see and he sticks with it and says, I believe in this, this, and this, and that's what I'm going to lead with and every decision I make. And I can really respect that. I think he's done a hell of a job through COVID. Uh, He kept us open. I think he's fantastic. I worked for the JAG Corps. And so I respect that he was a naval officer in the Navy and a lawyer obviously. And I like that he's not a pushover. I don't want a soft guy. I want him to be forceful and stand up to people. I don't want him to be like a Biden (laughs) where he's completely lost and doesn't know what he's doing. I like his family morals. I would agree with those statements of everybody else too, that he's very family oriented. I don't like being told what I can and can't do. I am immunocompromised. I have three autoimmune diseases, but you know what? I've been dealing with this stuff since 2011. So I stay away from people. I don't get in people's faces, but I also don't like wearing a mask. It gives me high anxiety. And so I like that aspect of DeSantis kind of not allowing governments to tell us what we can and can't do. It seems like he's family, Florida, then America. But he does take a nice, aggressive stance on stuff that he believes in. And I don't think that makes him, you know, a mini Trump or anything. If that's how we're going to start labeling our candidates from now on, you know, you're either a a mini Trump or you're a Democrat. And that's pretty silly just because you're a leader and you want to make change. So I like that he kept Florida open. Very refreshing. He does let people maintain their freedoms as long as you're not hurting anyone else, which is why this whole Disney thing is happening. So I want to note that three out of the nine people in this group, when we asked them, hey, do you want to see Trump run again? There were three people that said yes. And that sort of tracks with the diminished number of people we're seeing that are saying they want to see Trump run again in 2024. But then when we asked them head to head, you know, who would you back between Trump and DeSantis? Everybody but one backed DeSantis, which I got to say, the group in Florida who knows DeSantis really well They don't sound that different, actually, from the groups we've talked to in lots of other states who also really like DeSantis for basically the same reason, which is like the COVID situation that he kept Florida open. That has become the thing that he is known for. So let's jump into the DeSantis 2024 scuttlebutt. You're down there. You're watching him up close. What do you think? Is this guy running for president? I think he's positioning himself to be able to run for president if the opportunity presents itself. But at the current 
way in which things are proceeding, I don't necessarily see that opening for him, which is to say, it's difficult for me to see if the polling holds the way it does. And that's a huge if, it's a huge caveat. DeSantis challenging Donald Trump, like nationally, for instance, Trump is around 50% of Republican support in a crowded field. And DeSantis is about half of that. That's a good recipe for getting slaughtered. Now, yes, these different primaries are done on a state-by-state basis. You would have to start in Iowa. We haven't seen a lot of Iowa polling. But Trump's had organizers and people in Iowa since last year. He is planning to run for president again. And so it's just kind of difficult for me to see on the current course of events, if things continue to hold at this rate, despite some of the attrition in Trump's numbers, DeSantis seriously challenging him. I mean, it could happen. Don't get me wrong. Stranger things have happened. And I've been wrong before, and I am hedging my bets, but it's difficult for me to say. (laughs) These are weird political times for political prognostication, to be sure, because we've all been wrong about lots of stuff. But but let me just push back on one point. Don't you think, like, if if DeSantis waits another four years, I mean, everybody can say, oh, you know, DeSantis has four years to wait. He's a young guy. He's got a term in Florida. But also, it's sort of his moment. Like, I'm listening to these groups and how much they like DeSantis. And how much people are sort of starting to be like, eh, I don't know if I want to see Trump run in 24. Guy's got a lot of baggage. And they have this formulation about DeSantis where they're like, he's Trump without the baggage. Right. It's competent Trumpism, I think. Yeah, right. So why not seize this moment? I think that's certainly an attraction to it. I think on the other end of the ledger is just the humiliation of losing. DeSantis is a competitive guy. He's very analytical. I do buy what many people would call bullshit from the limited number of DeSantis advisors and people who deal with him, that he is not actively courting this. That does not mean he's not positioning himself to take advantage of the situation should it present itself. But I just don't see that there yet. It certainly would be his moment, yes. But at a certain point, I used this metaphor before, running against Donald Trump is kind of akin to dealing with a a self-immolating arsonist who's made out of asbestos. And his technique is just to hug you and burn you to death. (laughs) And that is what Trump does. I mean, you saw what he did to Marco Rubio. I mean, he he humiliated Marco Rubio. Yeah. Marco Rubio, like just kind of psychologically having observed him. I mean, I, I first covered Marco Rubio in 2003. Okay, that's what, 19 years ago in the Florida House. You know, I've covered him on and off ever since then, from the time he was House Speaker to, you know, the time he was thinking about running for Miami Dade County Mayor to his run for Senate and on, and his presidential run. He's never quite recovered from that humiliation that Trump doled out on him. He almost damaged Rubio's political chromosomes. Rubio lost 66 of 67 counties. Will DeSantis lose that many in Florida? DeSantis might win Florida. If you look at the polling, he's more popular among Republican voters here than Trump is. Don't get me wrong. But when, when I look at the way in which the political map lies, the geography, the timing, the calendar, and understanding that if you're running, just when you look at those nationwide polls, if you're running and you're at 50% and the next guy in a crowded field is at 25%, you're probably going to win. It's just hard for me to see the math. Yeah. I mean, you raised the point that I think is the key one, which is that it's one thing for DeSantis to be kind of fresh and new and popular with people because they like what he did on COVID. 
you know, and, and they also make a point that I think is an interesting one. I've brought it up many times on this podcast where you do hear a lot of voters just saying a very basic fact, which is if you get Trump, you only get four more years. Oh. <laughs> right. I know we all kind of laugh at that. Like, <laughs> we'll see. Maybe we get him for six more terms. Who knows? <laughs> um, who knows? But, yeah. you know, you take DeSantis, you get eight years. So I sort of have seen the opening for DeSantis. I do think it's his moment. I think there's risks to missing a moment. On the flip side, you don't know what any of these guys are made of until they have to go toe-to-toe with Trump. And he just makes them look so small. I mean, Marco Rubio is a broken man, as you note. And I can't tell you how much the strength and weakness sort of frame is used all the time in these groups, how much it comes up. I don't know, though. I mean, I've also heard some people who know DeSantis well kind of being like, you know... Yeah, he's got this reputation and people have seen him combative with the local media, but like he also doesn't have much of an operation. He's very insular. He's a little bit of a sourpuss. Very much. So, so like, does he have what it takes to to even let's say it's not now, but like, is he the kind of guy who like everyone will talk about and then you get him on the national stage and everyone's like, meh, he's not a great no, it's certainly possible. He, he could wind up kind of like Scott Walker, right? He can wind up having kind of a glass jaw. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, this is the reason you actually have to have the fight in the ring to see what happens. I don't know. I can tell you an instructive thing was Turning Point USA, the the new sort of ascendant political operation, which in some respects almost challenges the conservative political action conference, CPAC, yeah. for kind of the heart of where the Republican conservative movement is. They had their event earlier in August in Tampa and DeSantis was there and Trump was there, all of the gear, all of the energy, all of the buzz was about Trump. It wasn't about DeSantis. And these were kind of young activists. Yeah. That's like the Charlie Kirk operation. Yeah. Correct. Like that's sort of instructive as well. I still think that Trump trumps. He is still the sort of singular cultural icon in the Republican party. It is a cult of personality. He is the personality. You had more than 200 Republicans from down the ballot all the way up the ballot to Senate in multiple states groveling before Donald Trump for his endorsement. Totally. I mean, prostrating themselves for it. So I think that those kind of intangibles also say something about some of his staying power that the, the polling might not read. I'm not saying he's a perfect candidate or any of that, but a lot of the DeSantis boomlet is buzz that he rightfully earned for the way in which he handled COVID and the media's own goal, if I may, as a Florida-based national reporter. I witnessed the way so many different outlets, especially national ones, trundled along and made Florida sound as if we were just going to be this charnel ground of dead bodies stacked like cordwood here from COVID, and it didn't happen. Don't get me wrong, we eventually got ours, and the wave hit here too. But on balance, when you step back, Florida's death and infection rate, and the death rate is kind of the big one, right? When it's age adjusted, it does not reflect the disproportionate amount of coverage that Florida got. And that redounded to DeSantis's credit, whether for better or for worse. So he earned that. But beyond that, I'm not sure how much staying power he has in the national conservative Republican mind if he squares up against Trump. So I want to talk a little bit about another issue that got DeSantis national attention, drew national ire, which is the so-called don't say gay bill. And so you may remember, you certainly do. This is the bill that bans instruction on sexuality, sexual orientation in the classroom. 
it's watered down from when it banned discussion on those things. But right. in my opinion, it would still have some unintended consequences, like parents being able to sue a school because a teacher or intended like, consequences. Sorry, or intended consequences. Right? Yeah, 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 yeah. Like you know, a kid asks a question about his two moms, or you know, whatever. I wrote a Washington Post piece about this back in March. So, like, I think that it was a vaguely written bill that, that the intended consequences are sort of a, a witch hunty way of, of demonizing gay and trans yeah. people, but also playing into what is, I think, a culture war around wokeism and also what's sort of going on in schools. And this has been, you know, it was popular in Florida. Uh, about 60% supported this. And our group certainly found this bill reasonable. They were for it. Let's listen to what they had to say. The don't say gay bill is about the state stepping in and saying, we don't want you to teach certain things about sex, sexuality, gender, trans, whatever. We don't want you to teach that to our children that are in third grade or younger because there were schools that were introducing things about choosing your gender or pronouns or whatever to kids under 10. And if he doesn't put a stop to that now, it's just going to get out of control and it's going to get worse and it's going to get younger and it's going to be sexualizing our children even more. But we should not be talking about those things with children. Um, I, uh, this has been a topic both of those topics, the Disney and the Don't Say Gay, because I do have a lot of gay and lesbian friends, and I'm trying to understand their point of views also. However, you know what? If I recall, and I'm 48 years old, I wasn't taught sex ed or any of that stuff till I was in high school. And that's just how I grew up, and that's just how I feel. I don't have children, but if I did, I feel that, no, that should not be being discussed in school. And nowhere in it, it doesn't say gay anywhere. So the Don't Say Gay Bill, I think, was named that for media purposes to, like, create this ridiculous, you know, sensation of, oh, he's so bad. He's so mean. Honestly, if you read the bill for yourself, it's seven pages, I think, you can clearly see that they're just trying to not bring in the sexual orientation and sexual information to young kids. It's, it is very confusing as a child to start talking about these things. And that is not a teacher's job. It's science, math, history, and language arts. Like, why are we talking about sex in schools? It's ridiculous. I have my kids in a private Christian school because I can't even touch public school anymore. I'm scared and I'm a product of public school. Oof. I mean, it sounds to me like he really won the argument on how this was framed. Like, well, right? uh, I mean, remember, by and large, this is a pretty conservative group. What's interesting here is actually how well informed they are. The opponents of the legislation won the branding battle they lost the broader war. Mm. As you point out, it's really not don't say gay. It's don't teach gay. But don't say gay sounds much more threatening and terrible, right? And so that's what stuck. Well, congratulations, you guys have branded it this way. But as people actually looked under the hood, they realized it wasn't the case. This is a real difficult thing for a reporter to cover and especially to talk about because of the fraught cultural issues. The, uh, the reality is, is that you know, so many people who are gay, lesbian, trans, bisexual, they, they felt targeted by this. And I can understand why. At the same time, some of those organizations that branded this Don't Say Gay helped elevate this as a more threatening issue than otherwise it might have been. So what do I mean by that? 
as the husband of a public school teacher and the father of public school students and the friend of parents who have public school students. And as a reporter in the state, I can say with pretty much certainty that the overwhelming number of teachers are not doing anything remotely resembling teaching sexual orientation or gender identity in grades K through three. It's not happening. So given that disclaimer, the legislature, and that's originally where this originated, by the way, the legislature went out to solve or stop a problem that essentially did not exist. And the opponents of the legislation that solved a problem that didn't exist created an alternative problem that didn't exist by claiming, oh, if you do this, it's going to be all of this anti-gay bigotry. So you wound up in this perfectly toxic situation where two sort of imagined realities were clashing with each other in the legislature and it became a matter of raw votes and, well, the Republicans and the conservatives won. I'm not saying that parents have no right to be concerned that their kids are being taught things such as this. And I'm not saying that LGBTQ people have no right to feel targeted by it. But when you step back and try to look at it more objectively, which is kind of difficult to do, the legislation didn't match the reality. The reaction to it didn't match the reality. And now we're in this era of dysfunctional politics where everyone goes to their corners and fundraises over it. (laughs) I have this formulation where I I try to explain to reporters about it's not that DeSantis hates all the right people. It's that all the right people hate DeSantis. (laughs) And when, you know, people go at him constantly, that's what gets Republicans to be like, hmm, this guy must be good. Everyone's mad at him. Like gay people are mad at him. The libs are mad at him. The media is mad at him. He sounds great. Yes, it's negative partisanship. Also, this wasn't his legislation originally. Right. This started in the Florida House. Right. And what happened, though, is that as it developed into something, that's when DeSantis stepped in when he realized it was kind of perfect. Because the reality is, is that when you break down these component parts of the legislation in and of itself, do you believe children in K through three should be taught sexual orientation and gender identity lessons? Most people say no. Right. That's a majority popular opinion. Right. And when the opponents come and say, how dare you do that? By definition, once people are informed about the text of the legislation, those opponents lose the argument. And time and again, DeSantis has laid and Republicans have laid those sorts of traps that Democrats have stepped in. I had quoted Sean Shaw, former attorney general candidate, a Democrat who had pointed out this me quoting him. He said, look, I'm black. I believe in critical race theory. I think that, you know, its elements should be taught. But of course, when it's brought up, I'm going to react to it. However, he faulted his own party for overreacting to the way critical race theory was targeted by DeSantis in the same way that don't say gay was targeted by DeSantis. Is it, is it led Democrats almost naturally into adopting a position that wound up putting them opposite of where majority opinion is. Just to clarify, Florida's Stop Woke Act doesn't say you're not allowed to teach about race in schools. Of course, if you go on Twitter and you look at uh, certain very progressive resistance handles, that they'll have you think that Florida's not allowed to teach about slavery. I'm not joking. It's a total misrepresentation of the legislation here. And I have a very personal stake in this. My wife, as I said, is a public school teacher. She 
is uh, maybe she's unfortunate enough to have me as a husband. <laughs> uh, she's fortunate enough to at least have a reporter as a husband who understands how legislation is written and what it says. And we looked at the legislation. She's like, perfect. Like she doesn't teach in her class that white kids should feel bad about being white because they're oppressors. That's essentially what the legislation says you can't do. Well, she's not doing that. No one's doing that. And again, she's not teaching these other issues about sexual orientation and gender identity. And she's a fourth grade teacher. But that's just part of the tactical prowess that DeSantis has been able to exploit. And it's so far been to his benefit. Yeah. And that's where I think people see, as much as they might dislike it, a certain talent that he has for understanding which culture wars are going to play. And he like leans into yeah, them. He yeah, he's got it just like Trump. Like yeah. he does have that like instinct for grabbing onto the ones that are kind of cultural winners. What's interesting is, is a guy, one of the top consultants and pollsters in Tallahassee, Ryan Tyson is his name. I wrote the first story in February of 2021 before the polling showed it that DeSantis was going to be a national figure because of the COVID wars, as I call them. And Ryan had a great quote in that story, which is that he flies by instinct and not by instrument. Like DeSantis is not a big polling guy. He just has an instinctive feel for it. That said, you know, if he were a woman candidate, I would be accused of sexism for saying this. I'm going to grade him on his voice and his appearance. Mm -hmm. One of the big problems that DeSantis has is he's kind of frumpy looking and he's got a very shrill voice. It's high pitched and it doesn't carry the same sort of gravitas or weight that Trump does or that Carrie Lake does. Speaking of Turning Point USA, if you had seen the rally that happened, like Carrie Lake, I think more than DeSantis might be the standard bearer or the successor to Trump Yikes. In, in the Republican Party. Like she's really something to watch the way she's able to move a crowd like Trump. She is a creature of TV. She is just very kind of naturally there. And she's just a really dynamic speaker. So if, like if you were to ask me to lay money on like who might be a running mate for Donald Trump in 2024, if he decides to run for president, I would say Kerry Lake over DeSantis. And that, that's putting aside the whole geographic issue in the Constitution, which we won't go into. Uh, that's funny that you think he's frumpy. He strikes me as kind of like a young, handsome. Or you know, I should say he just wears these ill-fitting suits. Yeah, they are a little big on him, I guess. Yeah, they. It's just like, dude, hire a tailor. You have one hundred and forty <laughs> million dollars. Again, that's one four zero million dollars in your political committee. Okay. Um, speaking of Kerry Lake, though, I did think DeSantis made an interesting move. He recently endorsed and is stumping for Kerry Lake and Doug Mastriano, two of the most insane election deniers that are up this cycle. And so I thought it was interesting that DeSantis really leaned into that. Did you read anything into that? What I read into it is this, is that he had to do it. One of the interesting things is that the original story written about DeSantis doing the turning point rallies for Lake, for Mastriano, was written by Fox, Fox News Digital. And the headline was something along the lines of like how DeSantis was going to be the messenger for Trumpism or something like that. It made sure to mention DeSantis and Trump, and it put DeSantis in a subservient position to Trump. Mm. And there had been so much national media attention and so much sturm and drong over DeSantis challenging Trump. And DeSantis has repeatedly tried to tamp down that public discussion. For instance, he wasn't going and doing national events. He hasn't really set foot in many early states, in part because he didn't want that kind of headache of talking about him clashing with Trump. So Turning Point kind of filled the gap 
and bridge the gap with these two uh, in that way. So, yeah, again, he's positioning himself to maximize his strengths and minimize his weaknesses, like a good chess player who's not a great chess player. Mm -hmm. He's not a grandmaster, but he knows how to move the knight, how not to move the bishop. And so he's just moving these pieces in just a very thoughtful, strong, organized way. So that if Donald Trump moves his queen wrong or something, to continue the metaphor, suddenly DeSantis can be in a position to do some checkmating. Yeah, my colleague Amanda Carpenter has referred to DeSantis more as Trump's understudy than a potential challenger, like the guy waiting for the when Trump's got food poisoning so he can jump in and <laughs> yeah, uh, kind of like the way Stalin like allegedly delivered that bowl of soup to Lenin. That's right. On his deathbed. That's like, right. I need to be clear. I'm not comparing. Ron DeSantis to Stalin in case it gets out there. I want to, I want to make that clear. I was just using a metaphor. It's okay. This is a very high end audience for this podcast. They will, they will understand the metaphor. Oh, trust Um, me. Once it gets on social media, then the morons take over. (laughs) So one of my favorite parts of this focus group discussion though, was, you know, we're asking people about Disney, right? Because the don't say gay Mm -hmm. bill led Disney to put out a statement opposing it. And then DeSantis like went after them, repealed Disney's special taxing district, saying the taxpayers shouldn't subsidize their activism. And I thought that the way that this group reacted to that was pretty interesting because they were more on DeSantis' side than Disney. Right. It was funny to listen to them because there was almost like a Disney, like universal, <laughs> like there was like a theme park wars going on in yeah, this group. Yeah, well, welcome to Orlando. Yeah. I'm technically an employee of NBC Universal, so maybe I should be careful here. Yeah. <laughs> well, let's listen. Let's listen to what these voters said about Disney. I think that Disney was way out of their lane. I think they have been way out of their lane. I think allowing their, what are the castmates to show their tattoos and their crazy piercings and not use things like ladies and gentlemen anymore. Like, I think it was just kind of starting to build. And then those tapes of the Disney execs came out talking about how they are on purpose targeting young children to sexualize them with different ideas and the toy story that just came out buzz lightyear or whatever they had a gender neutral maybe person and that did not do very well for pixar i'm really disappointed at disney they have huge influence especially on on you know our youth and you know and i feel like for that same reason i don't think they should have an agenda disney is not for adults you know what i mean like Okay, if you want to create a whole other Disney just for adults to be gay and happy and pride, by all means, go do that. You have the money. Do it. But don't do that to our kids, especially parents that are traditional. I think it's so unfair because Disney for the longest was one way. And now all of a sudden they're forcing it down our throats to be another way for our kids. That metaphor is forcing it down my throat. Like it's, it's always so evocative. I remember it was used for Obamacare way back when. It's just always so kind of violent. <laughs> well, this is something you hear from Republicans all the time in yeah. terms of the way that they talk about the left, this idea that they're like shoving their way of living. But this strikes me as just another one where, look, I think there was a lot of early analysis around this fight uh, with Disney that like this was going to backfire on DeSantis because it's such a big employer in the state. Yeah, I didn't think so. But yeah. yeah, but it looks like this is another one that DeSantis won. Right. In the end, as we talked about earlier, what people liked about DeSantis is his toughness. The reality is, is he's growing into his role as the executive and the exercise of power to include punishing enemies. Donald Trump's top advisor is a woman named Susie Wiles, who 
helped mastermind or was the campaign manager for Ron DeSantis' comeback win in 2018. She had also helped Donald Trump and manage his campaign in Florida in 2016. And before that, Rick Scott in what everyone thought was a lost campaign in 2010. Well, you fast forward to 2019 after DeSantis wins and some people who didn't like the fact that Susie had so much power, uh, lobbyists mainly, they sort of engineered a way in which to persuade DeSantis that Susie was being disloyal. And he just kind of suddenly and metaphorically executed her in just a very brutal way, just ostracized her, got Trump's then campaign, again, it's 2019, got Trump's campaign to cut her off. He later rehired her, by the way, and then won Florida. But he showed right then and there early on in his administration, DeSantis, that if anyone crossed him, he would have them dragged out into the town square and shot. And he's continued to do that in a way that I've never seen out of a Florida governor in my more than 20 years of covering Florida government. So other examples, the Florida legislature went to do redistricting, and it was going to keep a Florida state Supreme Court drawn black majority or plurality seat. That is what's called a minority access seat held by an African-American member of Congress, Al Lawson. It was going to keep this seat, which was sort of racially gerrymandered, which is, I know, kind of a loaded term. It was a seat that was just created to make sure that black voters in North Florida could have a black representative in the U.S. House. No one would dare touch this. And the legislature is like, we're not going to deal with this because their maps had been thrown out in like uh, 2011, 2012, thereabouts, because it didn't have the seat. DeSantis came in and demanded it be drawn. Now, governors normally do not get involved in the drawing of new congressional seats for reapportionment. He not only inserted himself in the process, but he took the unprecedented step, at least in Florida, of vetoing a Republican legislature's maps because they were drawing a black district that the state Supreme Court had mandated. It was a total exercise of power. The legislature was pissed off, but they folded. And part of the reason DeSantis did that is the kind of a new Supreme Court. He's, he's now appointed a majority of its members. So that's a good example of his power play. The legislature had loads of money, thanks in part to Democratic Congress and Democratic President Joe Biden's a legislation, which has just sent billions to various states, including Florida. DeSantis made sure to veto local projects of any lawmaker who remotely crossed him or displeased him. Then you have Disney. Disney was a sacred cow here, a sacred rat, or whatever you want to call it. Mm. No one ever thought that a Republican legislature would eliminate the Reedy Creek Improvement District that was set up in the 50s to turn Central Florida into a, a theme park heaven. And he did it. Now, the question is, to what degree is it really going to have an effect? Who knows? But the fact that he even went there just sent a message. So the kind of total exercise of raw power politics. Oh, I'm sorry. I forgot the most recent one. Like two weeks ago, he removed from office the democratically elected state attorney. That is the prosecutor of Hillsborough County. That's the county where Tampa is. Because the guy had signed a letter saying he wouldn't enforce Florida's abortion law. Now, that suspended state attorney did so in part because a court had held that Florida's new abortion restriction that, that DeSantis had signed had run afoul of 
Florida's constitution, which has a privacy amendment in there, which has been defined by prior courts to apply to abortion. DeSantis didn't care. He said, this guy's negligent because he's not going to enforce the law. And he thinks he's governor. And so therefore, I'm going to remove him from office. He said he's not going to follow the law. You know, fuck him. We're going to get rid of it. Well, it's remarkable. You must be looking at my notes because that's a perfect transition because I want to talk about abortion because I thought one of the most interesting parts of this group was when they talked about this new-ish 15-week abortion ban. Um, and the only exceptions are to save the life of the mother or if the baby has a fatal abnormality, uh, but there's none for rape or incest. And I thought it was interesting because we've seen this in a bunch of groups that are pretty Trumpy, but they're still heavily pro-choice. Let's listen. Yeah. So you go to Texas where you just can't do it at all, or you go to some other states where you can do it days after the baby's been born. So there are extremes. So which extremes do you go for? Or do you just give them a little bit of an option? You still got the freedom to do it. So I don't see how that's him putting a stamp on it. It's over three months. If you don't know that you're pregnant by that, I, I don't know. I wouldn't know, obviously. But if you don't know that you're pregnant by then, then you can put it up for adoption. There are options after that as well. I lived under dictatorship. I'm not a woman. I don't think a woman should tell a woman what she can't, can't do with her body. So I'm just totally pro-choice, period. My biggest issue, and I've had this conversation with family because most of my family is pro-life. I'm pro-life, but I'm also pro-choice when there are certain circumstances. For instance, rape and incest is an issue, especially with somebody under 18. I mean, that's a child. Like having it like, no, I'm a survivor myself. So no, like I shouldn't be forced to have something that was forced on me. It's not okay. So if that exception's not there, it's an issue for me. I feel like I go both ways. You know, I'm Irish Catholic, you know, and abortion's not a thing, but I think it's almost like a case by case type issue. Because frankly, I think that those states that are completely banning it, I don't think that's a great idea because now where are those people going to go? Are they going to go down an alleyway? Yeah. I think that's what they did in Connecticut in the 1950s, which is where my mother is from. And my mother was forced to have a child that she was not, she was not ready to have. She was 16 years old. And so I'm torn. I'm really torn. I don't want somebody telling me what I shouldn't, shouldn't do with my own body. You can hear how people feel conflicted. They are more pro-choice, even when they sort of kind of identify as pro-life, which, by the way, I hear all the times in the groups where they're like, I'm pro-life, but I think people should have a choice. But they feel pretty comfortable with where this bill landed. It's not like places that are banning it entirely. It's a 15-week ban, so it's after the first trimester. There are still exceptions for the life of the mother. Voters seem to be comfortable with that. We frequently have seen in this state where voters have divided their loyalties between certain issues and politicians who oppose those issues, whom they nevertheless support. It will be interesting to see in Florida if this actually makes the ballot here Mm. and how it'll fare. But so far, this hasn't affected his standing in the state. I do wonder if the old Florida we thought existed, which was more of a swing state, more of a place where the center still mattered and there was more of a fulcrum. If DeSantis's increasing kind of conservative tendencies uh, will cost him. But I'm sorry, I, I think I'm just, I'm trying to argue something different slightly, which is that the 15 week ban is actually palatable yeah. 
like for a lot of these voters who are sort of more pro-choice and they don't see it as super extreme. Like, that's what I felt like I was hearing from them. Well, you're right. But I, I think in part because like a lot of people, and this is just me as a male, right? You think of pregnancy as nine months. You don't think in terms of weeks. So what really is 15 weeks? You know what I mean? Well, it's it's the it's the place where most people support it, right? Like the polling is like 15, 20 week bans. People tend to be like, that's fine because I think that there should be this window where it is accepted early on, but I don't like it later. I mean, you seem to be saying that DeSantis is like popular sort of in spite of this kind of more conservative mm-hmm. position on abortion. I guess I'm trying to say that I, I actually see this more as the compromise position on abortion, that it, that like oh. Republicans would be in a much better place if they were acting more like DeSantis and Yunkin and they were looking at 15 or 20 week bans with the exceptions, you know, afterward. We don't have an exception for rape or incest here. That's why it seems kind of kind of conservative to me here in Florida. Yeah. But I've always not really understood well abortion politics, in part because we've never actually had to test it at the ballot as we're starting to see now. Like Kansas was a, a good example of an eye opener. I'll confess here. I don't really know how voters think about abortion. I'm not sure voters really know what Roe v. Wade is and what it means. You know, most men especially have no clue what a woman pregnant at 15 weeks looks like. And maybe lots of women don't either who haven't been in big families or haven't had kids of their own. Yeah. I don't know. I literally don't. <laughs> well, that's okay. Hey, we don't all know. We can't all know everything. But but we can leave that one there. I want to talk about the, the Senate race because if this race were happening in 2018 and not 2022, it might be a lot more competitive. Because Val Demings is the kind of candidate that I think Democrats should be running nowadays, right? She's a former Orlando police officer who rides a motorcycle. She's explicitly running against defunding the police. But Marco Rubio is still solid favorite in this race. This group didn't have any time for Val Demings. Let's listen. I would for sure go Rubio over Demings. I don't trust Demings at all. (laughs) I think there's like a two-faced factor going on there. I just don't trust her. But Rubio, again, I'm catching up with politics here because I was gone for 13 years. But um, I've always liked Rubio. I've always liked his stance on things and the way he runs things. So I would totally go with Rubio. I specifically remember the defund the police thing. And because she had a history of, you know, being a top dog on the police force, which is fantastic. But when all the BLM stuff was going on and all that, she, she was very supportive of those protesting efforts and to the point where Biden almost chose her for his VP. So no way, Jose, I don't trust her as far as I could throw her. I just can't handle even listening to Deming. I can't handle her her campaign ads right now. And I walk out of the room and I like Marco Rubio. I'm good with him. I think there was some maybe national sense that Rubio would be vulnerable because as we noted earlier, he's like sort of been made to look like a shell of himself, but he seems like very safe in this election, despite I think Democrats early enthusiasm for Demings. What's your read on the Senate race there? I think a lot of national Democrats thought that, yeah, in part because they make the mistake of reading a lot of Washington coverage. Mm -hmm. Um, But, you know, kind of a coda or to finish the second half of our discussion about Rubio from earlier. Yes, Donald Trump humiliated him in the Republican primary, lost 66 to 67 counties. But then when you fast forward to Rubio's decision to run for reelection that year in 2016, 
he beat Patrick Murphy, his opponent, by, you know, seven or eight points. I mean, he beat him like a drum. So that was an indication like, ah, Rubio's pretty solid. Earlier this year, actually, it would have been last year when I was still at Politico, about that Rubio's really a tough candidate to beat in this state because of our demographics. Just real quick, 62% of the registered voters are white, white, non-Hispanic. 17% are Hispanic. 14% are black. And then the others are kind of unknown mixed race and the like. But in those three big buckets, white, black, and Hispanic, in those three big buckets, what Republicans like to do is they like to get 60% of the white vote, and they like to get about 40% at least of the Hispanic vote, and then that's it. That's lights out. Democrats can have 100% of the black vote and still lose. What Rubio is able to do, though, is he's over 50% with Latinos, and he's over 50% currently with whites in some of the polling I've seen, both public and otherwise. Well, right now with that, he's got a winning set of numbers. If he gets to where most winning Republicans are to 60% white, then it's completely lights out. Yeah. I want to turn now, Mark Caputo of NBC, to a big Florida story that has been unraveling over the past few days. The FBI uh, raided, I guess we're going with raided, Mar-a-Lago on August 8th. I I think it's a raid. Okay. And we did this Florida group the very next day before the warrant was unsealed. We also did another group from Pennsylvania of Trump to not Trump voters. So they were Trump voters in 2016, but refused to vote for him in 2020. And in both groups... So these were both after this raid happened, uh, so we asked about it. They were very skeptical of the FBI. Mm-hmm. They thought that the raid was only going to help Trump. You might be shocked, but I wasn't. I suspect you weren't, too. Nope. That this Florida group did not think the raid was legitimate. Let's listen. I mean, why haven't the Clintons had an FBI raid? Are you kidding me? <laughs> like, really? <laughs> like, I don't, that doesn't, it doesn't make any sense. Like, I think it's completely politically driven. Absolutely. Hunter Biden smoking crack with prostitutes on video. He's the current president. I don't want to get in trouble. Hunter's not the current president, but. No, but his dad is. I think he probably did take documents, but at the same time, I still think it's politically driven. I'm at that point where I don't know who to trust because everything is so deeply corrupt for so long. I was surprised there was no independent counsel. So that was the Florida group. Now, let's listen to the Pennsylvania group, which was people who voted for Trump in 2016, but then refused to vote for him in 2020. And so not a huge MAGA group. And yet they, too, were pretty skeptical of the FBI and seemed to think that this raid was actually going to help Trump. If it's simply because, oh, he may have taken some stuff from the White House, like the National Presidential Records Act, and that's all it is then it's going to blow up in their face. It'll basically prove that everything Trump's been saying is right now, that they're going after me, they're going after you, they're going after their enemies. You know, if it's simply all about, you know, he took a few documents, it'll just make everything that Trump said true. It would show that, you know, the Democrats are illegitimate and that they only care about going after their enemies and that they're going to use the FBI to go after their enemies. Trump actually has, you know, the warrant, so he knows what it's about, but he's not releasing it. So... That's just Trump being, you know, because he sees everybody else rallying behind him. They just want to find a reason to prevent him to run. I have a serious distrust in any authority. It's just, I don't know. 
I know inherently probably most of the boots on the ground FBI people are upstanding citizens who took an oath and like wanted to be FBI agents since they were kids, just like police officers. But I have a hard time believing it when it comes to something like this. There's other ways. There's subpoenas. There's other ways to get it. I mean, a raid. If that's what it's about, it's over the top. From what I understand, all of Obama's boxes and all of his documents are sitting in an abandoned restaurant warehouse in Chicago. Why isn't that being raided? Like, why aren't they going to get all those presidential? Like, it's supposed to go into the presidential library. So let me ask you, what do you think this FBI raid of, and there's still a lot we don't know, but this is everybody's wondering, does this help Trump? And everyone's calling me to be like, well, what are your focus groups saying? But this group in Florida, they were really down on the FBI, thought it was politically motivated. You know, a lot of whataboutism, you hear the Hunter Biden stuff. Do you think that it's going to help Trump? Well, certainly the short term, it consolidates his standing in the Republican Party. I was going to mention this in my discussion of DeSantis. And for me, it's the coup de grace on my previous analysis as to why he's not going to run against him, is that there is now a rallying around the chief effect. It's just difficult to see any Republican challenging him at this point. I mean, maybe Pence will. So yeah, I think in the short term, there's that. Now, of course, things could change. Who knows? Maybe the documents could come out. Evidence could come out showing any number of really terrible crimes from the president. I'm not going to speculate on what they are, but there's a lot of rank speculation out there on Twitter. You know, if that turns out to be well-founded and irrefutable, then yeah, sure. I see that hurting them. Long-term, Donald Trump's biggest problem in 2020 is that he is chaotic and exhausting. And Joe Biden's biggest asset was that he was boring and normal. And so people in 2020 chose boring and normal over chaotic and exhausting. Now, there's been certainly a hit to Biden's favorability ratings because another thing he ran on is being competent and all of these various problems came up, you know, from Afghanistan to inflation. We can debate later who's to blame for that or how he should have handled it or messaged it. Uh, So he certainly took a hit. But, you know, it's 2022. It's uh, basically two years after the presidential election, and we are still just completely consumed by Trump. And so I wonder about the degree to which that kind of here we go again exhaustion factor is going to surround Trump in a general election going forward. Now, we got two more years to go. Who knows? So I don't see this being helpful to him in the long run. But you know, there are just so many unknowns as to how this happens. Does he get charged? If he gets charged, does he get convicted? It's hard for me to see him get convicted just because of impaneling a jury, but I don't know all the evidence, right? I mean, if there's just clear and beyond the shadow of a doubt evidence, then yeah, all of that stuff changes. But just to put a kind of finer point on it, short term, big benefit to Trump. His poll numbers are up in the Republican Party. His fundraising went gangbusters. Everyone's talking about him. That's what he likes. Long term, I don't see how this really helps him. So I agree with this. I think this is the correct analysis based on what we know right now. Right. The idea that he's going to be successfully prosecuted, I think, is probably a little far-fetched. But the idea that he's established as a national security threat, you know, pretty good. But these voters, even the ones who maybe have been drifting away from them, it is causing a kind of rally around Trump effect. And that includes DeSantis. It includes elites in the party who I think would love to see Trump locked up. DeSantis as the understudy. Like, 
they don't have any room to maneuver the way that they'd like in terms of their own national profiles as long as he's the one crowding the stage. But they're certainly going to vociferously defend him because, again, they're not trying to challenge him. They're trying to be his understudy. And so it does have this short-term benefit. What do you make, though, of the thinking, such as it is, about when he gets in the race? Like, do you think it makes him move earlier? It may. The problem here is trying to predict the mind of Trump in such a dynamic environment, right? I think if he hopped in now, he would look a little too nervous. Mm -hmm. And so he wouldn't want to look weak. But it certainly encourages him to announce sooner than later. The question is, is does he do it before or after the midterms? I still think it's likelier than not he announces after the midterms. I think, like, does, does this affect the Justice Department's calculations on when to charge, if they plan to charge? Do they want to charge a former president who is an announced candidate for president and is the likely nominee for his party. So I, I also wonder to what degree Merrick Garland is looking at this. I mean, people will say, well, no, he's not. He's an institutionalist and the like. And because he's an institutionalist, the attorney general, I imagine he's going to be giving this a lot of thought. And as a result of him giving this a lot of thought, it gives Trump a little more time to decide when to announce. Yeah. So my dime store analysis on this is that I thought that Trump might jump in early because I assume that they're running focus groups themselves, lots of polling, and that he was seeing the same thing that I was seeing in a lot of the work that I was doing, which is that people were starting to look around for other people. Right. They were worried Trump had too much baggage. Right. And like his reason for jumping in had more to do with less trying to avoid legal trouble and more to do with like, no, 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 me, 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 everybody look at me. Exactly. Um, and this sort of gives him that opportunity for everybody to look at him and for the party to rally around him without him having to get in. Exactly. Um, and so I think I think I didn't think of that. I think you're 100 percent right. It does give him, like you said, sort of that more time. time to maneuver. And obviously, the party's not eager to have him jump in prior to the midterms because they don't want to make it about him. But this allows you to get all that benefit of the anger that people feel. And this is the number one takeaway, I think, from all the focus group work I've done is the total collapse of faith in institutions, right? Like nobody trusts the FBI. And that includes people who like didn't really like Trump and like didn't vote for him again in 2020, but they don't trust the FBI. They think things are politically motivated. That's something that's different, like with Nixon or just different times where people are like, oh, well, if the FBI is going to prosecute you, like you must have done something really bad. And now it's much more like who can trust the FBI? Like it doesn't matter to them that Ray, the FBI director, was appointed by Trump. Like none of that matters, right? Right. You know, I, I'm fond these days of quoting William Butler Yeats's poem, The Second Coming, where the phrase things fall apart comes from. And he says the center cannot hold, the best lack all conviction, and the worst are full of a passionate intensity. I think that centrifugal force of our politics where things have eroded in the center and spun out of control and are gyring around really speaks to the political moment that we're in. I remember in 2014, I remember hearing Hillary Clinton give a speech in Miami about the disintegration of trust in institutions. And it was a really good speech, actually. It was one of the more interesting political speeches I'd heard. And it's true in spades now. You know, the question as kind of like a court watcher is, you know, normally a search warrant in a federal investigation is done as a means to an end, the means being the search warrant, the end being a conviction or an indictment. The question here is, does that search warrant actually function as an end in and of itself, where the federal government was in this tussle, in this dispute, 
with Donald Trump and finally was like, we're just going to go there at the point of a gun and we're going to take back these documents. We've got the documents now. Yeah, we've crossed that Rubicon, but we're going to call it a day. Hmm. I don't know. I don't know either, but I always like giving William Butler Yates the last word. So Mark Caputo. <laughs> we'll do Lita and the Swan yeah. next time. I think. Mark Caputo, <laughs> thank you for being um, such an interesting guest. I uh, really appreciate you being here to help break all of this down. And thanks to all of you for listening to another episode of The Focus Group. We will be back next week and we will do this all over again. <laughs>